still here in PL. It's daytime now. It's gonna do some recording last night, but man, I took another sauna, a few Negro Modelos, a little bit of wine, barbecue, too chillax to do one. But it's daytime and, and it's actually really, working out really nice. I'm out in the garden area and there's uh, sunflowers and well, all sorts of flowers, but a huge crop of sunflowers, tomatoes, and a couple chickens. Yesterday I went across the way, across the trail, and picked a bunch of giant blackberries. And uh, we ate some like crispy blackberries, something or other. There's birds and a hummingbird feeder with hummingbirds at it, just done right on cue. The children are riding by on their bicycles. Well, I got a big mug of tea and a couple books here on standby. I'd advise you to get hunkered in because I've got a hunch this might be a long one. It's a beautiful Sunday. And this is Postcards from Gravelly Beach, number nine. The other day I was reading from the Uncle Weed book and reading Lewis and Clark and thinking about water and Utah. I think maybe because I'm wanting to go down there and tend to some unfinished business to tend to a Volkswagen bus and some bicycles or for whatever reason. And then on the television I saw a little something something on the Colorado River yesterday too. So I think I'm going to kind of stay with my Utah theme. I'm going to start off by uh, a, short st- a bit of a short story from a more contemporary writer named Francois Camoin. Prayer for the Dead by Francois Camoin. Penny calls up in the evening. Alan stretched out on the couch reading Popular Mechanics and watching a rerun of Taxi. It's the episode where Judd Hirsch has a date with the fat girl. So, we got ourselves a gun, Penny says. One of those, the guys that stores stuff in the building let us borrow his goose gun. What's a goof, goose gun, Alan says. On the TV, Judd Hirsch is trying to be nice, but the fat girl will have none of it. It's a gun you hunt geese with, Penny says. Forty-inch barrels. Looks like an anti-aircraft cannon. Have to turn it lengthwise just to get in the elevator. In your opinion, is Judd Hirsch the most civilized human being in the world, Alan says. Are we watching the same show, Penny says? That's weird, you know. If I was fat, would you still like me, Alan says. If you were also gentle, I would, Penny says. Yes. Gentle? You could have been my one and only, Penny says. Alan is not exactly sure how seriously to take this. There was a time when he was he was certain he was in love with his sisters. First Emily, then later Penny, but it's been years and years. Let's celebrate, Alan says. He's sitting in his new Burmese king chair from Pier 1. It squeaks when he moves, and he's not sure how long it will hold him up. But for now... He's at least willing to take it on faith. The only light's coming from a couple of Kmart candles set in ashtrays. There's a bottle of California Red on the table and some walnut cookies and a paper plate. What are we celebrating, Penny says. The dark, rich pageant of life, Emily says. You stole that line from a movie, Penny says. Let's have a good time, Alan says. Let's pretend we're all going to live forever. So that was the last bit of that story, and I was reading it from a hand-produced literary magazine that I found in my collection called A is A. And this was uh, volume two of it, or is that a question mark? I'm not sure. Anyway, it was something I picked up in Provo, Utah, apparently. I was flipping through it, and Francois Camoin caught my eye because I took a class from him at University of Utah. 
back when I was a diligent young student many years ago. And uh, he was kind of a character, especially in rather stodgy, conservative Salt Lake. He was bearded and disheveled and come stumbling in in cheap sneakers with his cup of coffee. And uh, the class itself, well, they crowd a lot of people into a creative writing class, and it's not really the attentive one-on-one or, I mean, group workshops or something. It's kind of a big class where everyone's trying to get a leg up on who can be produce the most cynical criticism of other people's work. But uh, I remember Francois almost chastising us for reading anything other than contemporary short fiction. If we want to be contemporary short fiction writers, that's what we should read. And I, uh, he said everything else was like cross-training. And so, but I chose to I choose to cross train extensively, and sometimes I get a little disenchanted with a lot of modern short stories because they have that sort of dry sparsity that became the de facto gospel after Hemingway or something. And I like it a little bit more lush and and uh, maybe even a little bit uh, more goofy, where not everyone's a serious loner, dramatically smoking cigarettes or wandering off in the sunset. But I enjoy reading that, and I I looked Francois to see. Uh, what else he's up to and he published he's got maybe four collections of short stories maybe I'll put a link to him to his University of Utah uh, faculty page he's the director of the creative writing program anyway Utah's got a very uh, you know like a film scene there's a lot of writers there but that's maybe another story anyway in this little literary magazine on one of the pages is an inscription to me from a guy named Dan Harper which I guess is who I got it from but you know I can't for the life of me remember but there was a guy named Dan Harper who was either in Provo or Salt Lake. Maybe we were at some writing conference together. Maybe it was in a bar. I really don't know. But uh, here's one of his pieces in it as well. First, I'll read the inscription. To Dave, may you avoid the senile older ladies who refer to you with four-letter words. Dan Harper. Walls. The couple next door play soul and jazz on an old turntable from Billie Holiday to Chet Baker. Albums drop. One on top of the other. Thelonious Monk's Ruby, my dear, and all the Motown R&B. I hear a voice ask, When you look at me, do you see yourself or someone else? The furnace kicks on. Alone, I stare at the walls. My girlfriend gave me a card of a bear, headed each end, saying, One of us is an asshole. Woody Allen wrote, The heart is a very resilient little muscle, and then went singularly back to his saxophone. Dan Harper. So rolling with the Utahns, I'm going to read the beginning of a story called Petroglyphs. And, you know, the funny thing is today, so far, it's all living writers, as I know, anyway. But Levi Peterson, some people call him the, the funniest or wittiest Mormon writer. Mormonism doesn't tolerate intellectualism well, but he manages to write some great uh, witty stories. This is from uh, his collection called Night Soil, a story called Petroglyphs. Humphrey Colburn, a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Utah, lived with his wife and daughters in Mary's student housing. He was city-bred, whereas Connie, his wife, was a country girl. For several years, a dismantled bicycle and a greasy hibachi sat on the landing opposite their apartment door. He never discovered to whom they belonged. At last, Connie sold them to a neighbor for six dollars. Humphrey respected her initiative and practical manners, but lamented her indifference to the improvement of her mind. He often felt he had married beneath himself. He planned to write his dissertation under the direction of a historian of the English Renaissance named Harriet Cullen, with whom he had a remarkable affinity. 
a sinewy woman of 60, Harriet said it was her purpose to mold Humphrey into one of the world's foremost authority on the wool trade between the Cotswolds and the Flanders during the reign of Elizabeth I. She coached him to an outstanding performance on his preliminary examinations and negotiated a grant whereby he could accompany her to England for research. Saturday evening, shortly before Humphrey left for England, he and Connie went to a party at Harriet's house. Upstairs and down the plushy carpeted domicile swarmed with professors, students, and their friends. The young couple found the buffet, loaded their plates, and took refuge in the den. There they were greeted by Harriet's husband, Preston, who asked whether they had examined his collection of canned corn labels. Please meet Mr. Zoroguchi, our horticulturist, Preston instead of his Japanese gardener, who wore a dark double-breasted suit. And this is Miss Murray, our boarder, he said of a robust young woman who sat on his other side. Miss Murray, thought to be reliable because she was Mormon, received board and room and a small stipend in return for providing a circumspect companionship to Preston on evenings and weekends when Harriet was away. Owing to heart disease, Preston's once large frame had shrunk and his lips were perpetual blue. Humphrey soon wandered from the den and joined a group who had been shooting arrows at a target on the back lawn. Among them were Harriet and an art professor named Dillis. The latter, a loquacious theatrical person, was describing last year's hot air balloon regatta at Park City, in Park City. I'll swear, Dillis said, there was this one balloon sewn in a bifur bifurcated way and bizarrely colored, I assure you, and it looked from for all the world like an upside-down scrotum, exactly like a giant floating scrotum. Dillis took notice of Humphrey. Where's your wife, he said. Left her home, I suppose, tired of her already. Marriage is a dreadful business anyhow. He peered into Humphrey's glass. Soda, he said with disgust. You Mormons are so fastidious. Harriet, send this boy to the bar for something with fiber. Pour him a mug of stout. Stout, I say, dark as flood water and warm as urine. So that was uh, the first part of that story, Petroglyphs. Levi Peterson. He's got a few collections of books out there, too. They're all set in Utah, and, and I feature these uh, kind of whacked caricature char characters that make even more sense if, if you've uh, lived in Utah or amongst Mormon communities. But anyway, uh, there's no, the great thing about Utah, man, is there's some great uh, geography and geology. And so watching that program yesterday I mentioned about the Colorado River, I uh, got to think I'd dig out an essay I wrote for a class at a community college in, uh, in Orem, Utah. And this is called Dam the Dam. Once upon a time, there was a river, a river and a canyon. Everyone who saw this river and this canyon really liked it. Some lived for it, some died for it, many fought for it. No one hated it, or admitted they did. Every one of these almost innumerable gorges is a world of beauty in itself. Yet all these canyons unite to form one grand canyon, the most sublime spectacle on earth. This is what John Wesley Powell said about the Colorado River and the canyons it gave life to. The canyons Friar Francisco Garces described as the most profound canyons which ever onward continue. Powell and Garces knew the Colorado a long time ago. They explored they explored areas, an area that is now very different and yet changing even now. 
Up until a few years back, people took care of the river and it took care of them, a relationship that worked well until someone decided that the river could be better used, running air conditioners so they built a dam. No one noticed much then. It was back when few knew much about the wonders this area held. Anyway, they thought there was more than enough of this hostile, rugged area to go around. Dams were built everywhere, lots of them. It was an easy fix for the energy junkies. Man has flung down a great barrier in the path of the turbulent Colorado, proclaimed the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation during the 1960s. It has tamed the wild river, made it a servant to man's will. The Bureau was boasting of Glen Canyon Dam, a 710-foot-high monument to technological prowess. But it could have been talking about any dam in the country. Now the cliffs, the canyons, the plants, the birds, the rocks and things in the river is gone. The dirty warm river fills the reservoir and passes through the dam, clear and cold. Wonder where the silt went. Give it a hundred years to wallow and at the beaches downriver, the ones replenished by the silt aren't really there now. There's a long list of plants, fish, animals and the like which aren't there anymore. They aren't coming back. The amount of water is regulated by the amount of microwaves running in Beverly Hills, and so the lake and river level raises and lowers in coordination with the need. This accounts not only for the fascinating bathtub formation, but it destroys pretty much every shred of flora and fauna. That flora and fauna won't be coming back. Besides whitewashing the canyon walls, the dam also created a lovely layer of algae in the chilly downriver. Besides the birds, plants, wildlife gone too are the waterfalls, the beaches, the trees, the canyons, the warm flowing river, all under the lake. Well, I'm going to keep reading some more, so you might consider this one more of an aerogram from Gravelly Beach. But it's a Sunday and it's lovely out, so I'm going to keep rolling. I'm going back to some Edward Abbey here from Desert Solitaire. This is about, uh, part about talking about Labor Day weekend at Arches National Monument. Now here comes another clown with a scheme for the Utopian National Park. Central Park National Park, Disneyland National Park. Look here, he says. What's the matter with you fellows? Let's get cracking with this dump. Your road is bad. Pave it. Better yet, build a paved road to every corner of the park. Better yet, pave the whole damn place so any damn fool can drive anything anywhere. Is this a democracy or ain't it? Next, charge a good stiff admission fee. You can't let people in free. That leads to social socialism and regimentation. Next, get rid of all those homely rangers in their Smokey the Bear suits. Hire a crew of pretty girls, call them the Rangerettes. Let them sell the tickets and give the campfire talks. And advertise, for God's sakes, advertise. How do you expect to get people in here if you don't advertise? Next, these here arches. Light them up, floodlight them, turn on color revolving lights. Jazz it up, man, it's dead. Light up the whole place all night long. Get on a 24-hour shift, keep them coming, keep them moving. You got 200 million people out there waiting to see your product. Is this a free country, or what the hell is it? Next, your campgrounds. You gotta do something about the campgrounds. They're a mess. People can't tell where to park their cars, or which spot is whose. You gotta paint lines, numbers, mark out the campsites nice and neat. And they're still building fires on the ground, with wood. Very messy, filthy, wasteful. Set up little grills on stilts, sell charcoal briquettes, better yet, hook them up with gas lines, install jets and burners. Better yet, do away with the campgrounds altogether. Those only cause delay and congestion and administrative problems. These people want to see America. They're not going to see it sitting around at a goddamn campfire. Take their money, give them a show, and send them on their way. That's the way to run a business. I exaggerate, slightly, 
Was he real or only a bad dream? Am I awake or sleeping? Will Tuesday ever come? No wonder they call it Labor Day. Oh, yeah. Ed Abbey, Desert Solitaire. You know, I think the other day I mentioned that he wrote that in 1968. That's when it was published. It was really, he really did the writing and lived there in, in the late 50s, I believe. But anyway, no big whoop. Hey, so now I'm jumping back to Lewis and Clark. So much for writers who are still alive. Um, and I'm skipping ahead a year in their uh, journal as well. And this is from towards the end, the home stretch. I like Lewis and Clark with this jazz, too, I gotta say. <laughs> they probably never intended it to be read this way. Thursday, 4th September, 1806. As we were in want of some tobacco, I proposed to Mount Ayers to furnish us with four carats for which we would pay the amount to any merchant of St. Louis. He very readily agreed to furnish us with tobacco and gave to each man as much as it was necessary for them to use between this and St. Louis, an instance of generosity for which every man of the party appears to acknowledge. At 11 a.m. passed the entrance of the Big Sioux River, which is low, and at Meridian we came to at Floyd's Bluff below the entrance of Floyd's River and ascended the hill with Captain Lewis and several men. Found the grave had been opened by some natives and left half covered. We had this grave completely filled up and returned to the canoes and proceeded on. At dark, the musketeers became troublesome and continued to do continue so all night. The party obtained but little sleep. I think that was mosquitoes. We made 36 miles only today. 36 miles sounds pretty good to me. Saturday, 6 September 1806. At the low point of Pelican Island is a little above the Petite River de Sioux where we met a trading boat of Mr. Og Chateau of St. Louis bound to the River Jacques to trade with the Yanktons. This boat was in care of Mr. Henry Delorme. He exposed all his loading to dry and sent out five of his hands to hunt. They soon arrived with an elk. We purchased a gallon of whiskey of this man, promised to pay Chateau who would not receive any pay, and gave to each man of the party a dram, which is the first spiritish liquor, which, we had, which had been tasted by any of them since the 4th of July, 1805. So that's a year and three months with no liquor. Several of the party exchanged leather for linen shirts and beaver for coarse hats. Those men could inform us nothing more than that all the troops had moved from the Illinois and that General Wilkinson was preparing to leave St. Louis. We advised this trader to treat the Tetons with as much contempt as possible and stated to him where he would be benefited by such treatment, etc., etc. Besides my rather clumsy tongue, that Lewis and Clark journal stuff makes for some tricky reading. The addition I have is, as it should be, copied directly from the journals with all the strange punctuation and s odd spellings and other such things that make it a little tricky. Hey, so like everyone else, I've been following this destruction and chaos going on on the Gulf Coast area of the U.S. And while I'm not going to be one to pontificate or, pontificate or posture that I know what these people are going through, because it's really a horrendous situation, I thought the least I could do is send them some uh, kind thoughts via... Jerry Garcia band singing Louis Armstrong and New Orleans native and ambassador to the people. This is from a show I was at in Hampton, Virginia, and I had hitchhiked to the show in the 
arrived in the rain, got a free ticket, went in, and had a great evening. So I can only hope that same luck for everyone else. It was a hurricane that brought me to this place. Cold October in expensive London, coinciding with Hurricane Andrew in Miami, conspired for a cheap flight. After a fall, picking grapes in Germany, hitchhiking here and there, sleeping under park benches, haylofts and tents. Found myself at old friend Nick and Teresa's house, an apartment in Key Biscayne, Florida. The town was ravaged, people still pillaging, boarded up houses, people wondering what normal was all about again. So we got a driveway car, and when I say we, I'll just call him Traubin, my amigo. We were two well-intentioned Canadian boys stumbling around Miami, looking a little out of place. So we got this driveway car from these guys that looked out of an old sitcom, crusty old cigar-chomping Jewish dudes. Send out rent-a-car, well, not rent-a-car, drive-away car. We deliver a car to some other place for some other person. So we got this car. It was uh, purple-tinted windows peeling off, some kind of Mazda something or other, and headed out. The first night going across Florida, we were pulled over in the middle of nowhere by six police cars. Out of the car, flies as big as baseballs, mosquitoes, whatever. So we ended up through the... Gulf Coast, stopping here and there on this crunchy white sandy beaches of Alabama. Pulled into New Orleans sometime early morning, three, four in the morning, after drinking beer on the drive. Well, in parking lots and such, not along the way. Found a cheap breakfast at some early morning joint, sitting over long cups of coffee, wondering what the next move was. The car had to be delivered to Dallas at some point. In fact, it was really soon. We were probably already overdue. 
but we were enjoying the ride. It turned out the next move was exploring New Orleans for the day. Stomping around, we had little money. But enough to buy those alcoholic slurpy things that everyone was selling on the street there. Sneaking into hotels, we're not sneaking in, wandering in the lobbies, and going to wander around the hotels, going like you know. See all the curvy ironwork, woodwork, peeking into jazz, jazz clubs. We weren't out there partying. We were just there passing through, not seeing what we could. A hurricane took me to this place, and a hurricane took it away. We're listening to Jerry there. I moved into its garage because someone started power washing their car across the way, man. We're in my fling shay. But I've been hearing it with these big drums of methanol and fryer grease he's made into some sort of diesel fuel. So I'd tell you everything I read today to recap, but I really don't remember because there's so much. It's a real treat for me to hang out and pull some of this rare stuff, uh, well, less red stuff off the shelf and share it with you especially on such a lovely day as today. I'm going to go witness the future of rock and roll later on this afternoon, and I hope you enjoy whatever you're doing, too. Thanks for hanging out. For Postcards from Gravelly Beach, number 9, this is Davo signing out from PL.